engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 260. And today I'm joined by Spencer Newharth for a bonus Christmas episode to discuss the conclusion of his season-long hunt for a special South Dakota buck. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And uh, surprise, we are back for an episode. I told you last week that it was going to be our last episode of 2018, but uh, decided to give you a little bonus here, like a a little bonus Christmas gift, I suppose. Um, I was thinking, you know, I don't have anything better to do. And I imagine there's probably some people that just got done with Christmas. They're tired. They ate a lot of turkey or a lot of ham. Maybe they're, you know, family's great, but maybe they've had a little bit too much family. So maybe, maybe a few of you are out there. You you had to find a little time to get away from the Christmas chaos. You wanted to just kind of hide in the closet or the back room and you needed something to take your mind off of maybe your crazy aunt or off of the 7,200 different toys you've had to put together over the last week. So, so I figured we would try to help you guys out if that's you, um, with a little bit of deer hunting talk here to wrap up the year. And what's nice is that we have a really good occasion to celebrate here as well, because in addition to myself today in the episode, we've got the baritone from South Dakota along with us, Spencer Newharth. And uh, Spencer, you've been on the podcast, well, you've been on helping us with Rut Radio for, for three years now, and then you've been kind of hopping onto the main episodes more and more and more. And this year, um, in particular, we, we really kind of dove into little bits and pieces of your season you know before the season started you me and dan kind of broke down our thoughts and our goals dan even named one of your bucks um so there was there was this beginning of a story for you and then each week on rut radio we kind of have heard just little bits and pieces um but we haven't gotten like an all-inclusive um comprehensive look at what you did this year and i think I think it deserves to be looked at now because that buck that Dan named for you, which then we renamed, (laughs) that buck met his maker recently. And that's a story I want to hear, Spencer. So um, I guess I should have said Merry Christmas first, Spencer, but Merry Christmas. And then (laughs) can we talk about this buck? We can. Well, Merry Christmas to you as well, Mark. (laughs) Uh, Are you excited? I hope Am I excited to talk about Dan? Well, yeah. I mean, are you are you are you happy? Are what, describe to me just your your mood right now, post everything that's happened for you this season. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy. Um, still riding the high of killing that buck. It was less than a week ago now that it happened, but I did not think it was going to happen for that deer, and so I was pleasantly surprised to kill a buck of that caliber, and specifically him. So I'm I'm very excited. Yeah, well, you should be. Heck of a deer. Heck of a, a journey, it seems like, throughout the season. And, 
you know, I don't want to toot our own horn too much this year because next year it might go horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> but this year between <laughs> between you and me and Dan, we didn't do too bad. We managed to put a few on the ground and uh, kind of cool that um, the buck you talked about at the beginning of the year, you got. And um, unfortunately, the buck I was talking about at the beginning of the year disappeared. But, you know, things weren't, weren't too bad the way they right. worked out. So, um I'm thinking maybe we just get right into te- hearing this story because other than the fact that my pantry flooded today because the wash drain is plugged up, so I've got a flooded uh-huh. room. Um, other than that, there's nothing too else exciting that I have to share. Um, so I think we should just dive right in from the beginning and work all the way through. Yeah, so the story of my pursuit for Dan goes all the way back to this spring. And South Dakota traditionally has had an opener that landed on like the fourth Saturday of September, the third or fourth Saturday. So typically it would fall around like September 24th or 28th or 21st, whatever, somewhere in there. Um, and, And with that, the deer were normally out of their summer patterns. So I was never super pumped for our opener. This year in South Dakota, though, um, by an, an overwhelming vote, they moved the opener to September 1st to match a lot of our neighboring states like North Dakota, uh, Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana. Um, so that was really exciting, and, and that gave me you know, something else to look forward to for the 2018 season. So with that, a lot of my properties set up pretty well for like an early, early September hunt in that I had a, had a lot of fields that were green beans this year, soybeans this year, excuse me. Um, so I was really excited and more than normal, I was doing a lot of summer prep. I was putting up a lot of trail cameras, uh, doing that kind of thing, hoping to kill a velvet buck. Normally, I don't do much of that because all of the intel that I get um, you know, from June, July, August, it's irrelevant by the time we get to late September because those bucks are gone um, or they're off of their summer patterns. They are now nocturnal, not now nocturnal. It doesn't matter. So this year I was really excited for the September 1st opener uh, and my preseason scouting mirrored that. And so I was getting cams up, um, you know, much earlier than I normally would like in June um, and starting to take my, my summer scouting and my summer tree stand work, my summer chores a little bit more seriously. So this goes back to mid June was when I got the first picture of Dan. I think it was in the middle of the night. Um, it was hard to tell that he was like going to turn into what he turned into, but when he was in a picture, when he was in the same frame as other velvet bucks at that same you know, development of velvet, you could tell he was going to be big. So I was immediately excited. Um, but it, it didn't necessarily mean that this buck was going to become a regular, but as we got into July and August, he did. There were some cases where I'd be getting him on camera, like morning and evening in daylight, uh, for like two days in a row. And so, as we talked about then on the August episode with me, you, Furder, Dan, uh, you know, when we were talking about our goals and stuff, I said my goal is to kill a velvet buck. And I thought if I was going to kill a velvet buck, it would be Dan. Yeah. That was not the case. Now, now I want to I hit pause here for a second. Uh-huh. And not only was this the first year that you got to hunt a buck, or at least try to hunt a buck that would still be in velvet, um, but back to that podcast episode you mentioned on that one where we talked about our goals we also you know also forced upon you the idea of naming a buck Dan Johnson named your buck Forrest after your favorite movie Forrest Gump we later changed that to Lieutenant Dan because obviously should have named it Dan <laughs> so this was the first year that you at least as far as I know um kind of had a buck like this that you were actively hunting that you were kind of talking about to other people that other people knew about and they knew about it by name so there's always a little bit at least for me there's like some different level of i don't know what it is pressure or 
or energy or tension around a hunt like that when you're after one specific deer and you're thinking about that one specific deer so much. Now I know there's there's other deer around here you were you would have shot too. But did the slightly different significance to this one change anything for you as far as how you hunted or the enjoyment you got out of the hunt or maybe some stress or, or anything like that? Uh, it, it was definitely different. Um, I think the biggest reflection of that was like my early season sits. You know, I hunted like nine out of the first 10 days of September trying to kill that buck um, because I knew he was around. I'm not sure that naming him changed that, but because I knew he was there and uh, I had a chance at him, I hunted a lot harder than I normally would at the beginning of this season. But yeah, speaking to like us naming that buck, that's something that I don't do. Um, I think I've named like one buck ever previous to that in the decade that I've been bow hunting. Um, I'm just not really interested in it. If I name a deer, there's like a, there's an implication that I'm only targeting that buck uh, or there's like an implication that it's even realistic that I would kill that buck. I know a lot of guys who like will get a picture of one big deer in the middle of the night uh, in early November and then they name that deer and then they tell everyone, yeah, I'm hunting this deer and they give him a name. Uh, <clears throat> and that's just that's not something I'm interested in doing. Uh, you know, like I said, it would, it would imply that. I'm actually just like slowly targeting this deer. And then there's the added pressure to it uh, and some other things. And then I, I also have a really hard time tracking deer like within the same season or even season after season. Because, um, you know, like we talked about on the August episode, there's like a few times that the deck gets reshuffled. Um, like in South Dakota here, one is when harvest happens. Another one is when pheasant season happens. That pushes a bunch of deer around. Another time is when rifle season happens. So uh, it, it's really, really rare for me to find a deer in June and then, you know, have a, a history with him that goes like five months later or whatever all the way into December. So that's just another reason that I'm not somebody who's really named deer before. But you're, you're implying that you, regardless of the naming, that's a convenience thing or having fun with the thing. And that's fine if you're not into that, but you, that you're talking about the fact that you don't want to target a specific deer, but that's, yeah, kind of did this year. So did this like confirm that you don't like doing that or do you uh, feel differently now? Uh, I still wasn't targeting this specific deer. If, uh, you know, when I was archery hunting, if a different 135 inch buck would have walked by, I'd have shot him. Uh, when I was rifle hunting, I did a sit that was specifically for Dan. I didn't kill him. My next sit was a sit that was not specifically for Dan and ended up killing like a 145 inch buck. Then, uh, my muzzleloader sits, you know, that tag was good for the entire month of December. I didn't kill him until December 21st. I probably had over 20 sits in during that period. Probably half of those were for Dan and the other half uh, were, were just for other deer. So I didn't overpressure Dan. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I was specifically targeting that buck because if that was the case that I was specifically targeting that buck, I wouldn't have killed a single other deer until, uh, you know, five days ago. Do you think you would have killed Dan earlier? No, no, I don't think I would have killed him earlier. Uh, what I'm just saying is when I had that rifle tag back in November, I shot a different buck. And had I been holding out for Dan, I would not have shot that buck. Fair enough. So we're, so we're getting, so, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves though. Um, so, so take him back to you in September. And I guess this is all good context though, too, because this does paint the picture a little bit better for someone going into, you know, your season here that, this buck was one you knew of. This buck was one you wanted to hunt, but you were very, um, what's the word? All inclusive with what you would shoot. Sounds like he wasn't. Yes. It sounds like he did not weigh heavily on your mind like deer that I hunt do. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. Like I was, I was very aware of Dan. Um, I did some sits that were specifically for Dan, but overall, my season was never about killing Dan. You know, another thing that might be an interesting point or a point of differentiation is it sounds like you've got other deer to hunt, right? It sounds like there's a lot of different deer to hunt. While, you know, 
like in the main spot I hunt closest to my house, that's like a 90 acre property. There's only other ever like one deer. So by default, that becomes like the one deer that I'm hunting. How many different shooters would you say this year that you had on the property? Cause this is a pretty big property, right? Um, that you would have shot maybe, or that you got pictures of or saw or something like that. Well, I hunt a mixture of private and public. I haunt like three or four different private pieces that none of them are overall very big. Um, and they're all, you know, less than a hundred acres or so, and they are shared with other people. And then I also hunt some public ground. Um, so in a, in a year's time, I'll usually have, you know, a number of different shooters that, that I'm interested in. And so that's definitely part of it as well, is that I'm not forced to just target a single mature buck. If I find a single mature buck, you know, I'm, I'm not against, like, I have no problem when people like set out to kill a specific deer like you did with Holyfield. Um, I, I get that. And, and there's a lot of excitement around that. Um, it's just a, at my point in hunting, um, I'm, I'm, you know, willing to kill like any 130 inch buck that walks by. So, and I have that opportunity here in South Dakota. Like I said, it's, it's not uncommon for, you know, me to have half dozen bucks, you know, in a year that I'm interested in killing rather than maybe just one. Yeah. And we've never really talked about this before. Um, but so does anything else go into your decision to target a buck other than just you want 130 some inch buck or uh, do, do you, do you look at or care about age or experiences with that deer or anything else? Um, yeah, I, I don't know about neither one of those things. No. Um, because like I said before, I have a really hard time tracking a deer throughout the season. There's plenty of deer that I kill that I've never seen before. And so it is a quick decision that I'm going to kill that deer. Um, so as far as it goes with having history with a buck or knowing that deer's age, no, there's not a lot of that that goes into it for me. I see a deer, and if I get excited about him, um, I'm going to kill him. That's that's basically what it is. And that that's because, like I said, I hunt a lot of small fractured properties that I don't get a chance to like follow a buck year after year. Whereas if I had you know a thousand acres of consecutive you know good deer hunting ground, that wouldn't be the case. I could find a buck in in June almost every year and follow him all the way until winter. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so let's dive right back into it then. So all this is good to understand your mindset. You went into September, the first nine, 10 days, you kind of did spend more time trying to kill this buck. Didn't work out. Um, walk me through then kind of what happened from there. Because if I remember right, you, you were kind of hunting around a little bit. There was that, I think you flooded out a property or something. So you couldn't hunt him as much and you started kind of expanding your range off from there. Right. Yeah, uh, early September I was targeting that deer, but we had a whole bunch of rain. Uh, it rained like, I don't know, four out of the first 10 days, and where I hunt at is at the end of like a minimum maintenance dirt road. And so I literally could not get back to the property, even if I wanted to. I, I could have, I guess, parked my pickup like, you know, three miles away and walked in there, but I just didn't think it was worth it. And at that point in early September, I was starting to see Dan less and less frequently. And so once that didn't happen in those first 10 days, um, I kind of thought it was over with for him, maybe until the rut. And so, you know, the beginning of September didn't happen. After that is when I expanded out and I started hunting like my three or four other spots and kind of forgot about Dan, hoping that maybe during the rut, he would show up again. So the rest of September and October uh, were just like a normal archery hunting season for me. Sometimes I was in the area that Dan was present, um, but I, I laid. I did actually lay eyes on him one time, and that was October 15th. He was about 200 yards away. Um, I saw him get out of his bed with another buck, and they never got closer to me than a few hundred yards. But that hunt was important because I saw where Dan was betting. And and what I learned from that was that he was way, way in one corner of my property that I could not get to without pretty much busting him. If I would have had access from some of the neighbor's ground, which I tried to get and failed, that would have made a difference. I would have been able to you know, have a different entrance and exit when trying to kill him. But because of the more of that property he was, I just didn't think it was realistic. And so that was 
October 15th. And after that is when I kind of seriously moved on from trying to kill him because I, I didn't think it was um, practical to just target him. And, you know, after that sighting and, and a little bit before that sighting, all of October, I was maybe getting him on camera uh, like once a week, not usually during daylight. And so he was like betting on my property and frequently frequenting uh, my property but not enough for me to to just you know sit around and, and wait for him to to mess up. And and were you actively choose? It sounds like, but it it sounds like there wasn't like the desire to try to zero in on it or to like push it to like get closer or pattern him in any particular way because of because of a you had other options or was it b just because of where you thought he was that it would just be too too risky to do that or what were your thoughts there? Yeah, other options. Um, and because of the corner of the property that he was bedded in, I was worried that if I pushed him out of there, then he would just be gone for good. Then my odds of killing him would go from like a 10% chance to a 1% chance. And so it just didn't seem worth it to me to, you know, get in there that deep into his little hidey hole and, and push him out of there. What was that hidey hole like? Like, what was this area that a mature buck in South Dakota would call home? So this was uh, a bunch of really thick plum thickets, um, kind of like on the high side of a creek. And so there was there was a creek that runs through the property, and there was a pretty steep cut bank that he was on top of that cut bank, like on the flatter surface, um, and then in the middle, a bunch of plum thickets. And so... I got to – I knew there were there were deer that bedded in that area and it's always kind of been a sanctuary for them, um, kind of forced and by choice because like I said, it's, it's super hard to access um, to kill something. And because I you know knew that he was bedding over there then, I, I kind of stayed out even more. And so October 15th was my understanding of him during the season. After that, I hunted a few more times for him. Um, I made a trip to western South Dakota in late October. When I got back, he was on one of my cameras again, uh, like 10 yards in front of one of, one of my tree stands, hitting a scrape. Um, and he was kind of starting to make those, I don't know, reckless walkabouts that they do in October. And so I was getting him on camera a few more times in late October and early November, but I was never in the right place at the right time. And we got to like, I think it was November 8th or 9th. And I knew, um, as a lot of bucks do, that he was probably soon going to like abandon his core area and abandon those patterns that he has if he had not done it already um, because of, you know, as they do during the rut, they'll, they'll move around all day and all of a sudden you can just lose a buck for good or have a new buck show up for good, kind of like, Frank did for you. And so we got to that November 8th and it was, I just hunted that morning and I decided I was going to go walk into Dan's bedding area just to see what it was like. And I was okay if I pushed him out of there because, uh, you know, with the, the peak of the rut just about to hit us, I figured that was as good a time of any to, um, I guess spook him out of there because he was probably going to leave anyway. And so I went walking in there and sure enough, like 50 yards in front of me, as I'm trying to crawl through these plump thickets, he stands up and, and it was hundred percent him. I put my wow. binos on him and, and he turned and looked and he busted out of there and that was over with. And then I got to like really, really investigate his bedding area. And you, you, once I got in there, you could just smell like a rutting buck was in there. He was with another buck as well. Uh, and it was just full of rubs and scrapes. Uh, and you could see why he was so comfortable in there. And it also confirmed for me why I wasn't able to hunt him there. Uh, it was just so loud with those plump thickets trying to get in there and the topography. Uh, wind swirled really bad that trying to approach from any direction just would not work. And so I learned a lot from that, even though I bumped him out of there. And, and I was okay with it, like I said, because... Uh, you know, it was about to be November 9th or November 10th. Uh, he was probably going to, you know, leave my property anyway at that point. Interesting. So you saw where he's bedded. A lot of people, when they bump a buck out of its bed, 
think there's, you know, try to take advantage of that and try like the old bump and dump technique where you say, all right, I, I spooked him out of here, but I know exactly where he's bedded. And they try setting up like right over it or very close to it and hope that maybe he'll come back one more time. Did you try anything like that or think about that? Um, or if not, what did you do? Yeah, I considered it. And, um, that was when I, I tried to get permission again to access, you know, from the neighboring properties and it didn't work out. And so I, I just thought at that point, uh, I'm just going to stay out of here because, um, this is important context to it. I had a rifle tag that was opening about 10 days from then. And with that rifle tag, I would be able to set up, you know, a few hundred yards away. And if he was still using that bedding area, I'd be able to kill him from there rather than having to be right on top of him in his bedroom, uh, you know, set up to try to kill him at, at 12 yards or whatever. So because I had that rifle tag, coming up and, and I could make some safer setups for him. Um, that was another reason that I decided not to come back and try to kill him with my bow in that spot. Yeah, that definitely, that definitely helps knowing you can reach out there a little bit soon. Um, did you have any worries? Were, were there any other guys or girls around there hunting that were hunting this deer too, or were close enough that they, that they could have, or did you have to worry about that kind of influence? Yeah. Um, and I learned this after I killed him. I, there's some public ground in the area um, that gets hunted quite a bit. And there was a few different guys on there who had pictures of the deer just in the middle of the night. I don't think they were serious threats to kill him because of, uh, you know, how far away from his bedding that was. But they were aware of him. Um, and then where he was bedding, he was using three different properties regularly my property and then the two properties that butt up against this corner and both of those properties have multiple rifle hunters nobody bow hunts them but there are multiple rifle hunters so i definitely had a fear that you know come rifle season nobody in in our deer hunting neighborhood would turn down that buck if given the chance to kill him and so uh, I, i wasn't super confident that he would make it through rifle season yeah so okay so given that context then You've got other rifle hunters all around, but you also think you could get a shot at him during rifle season. What what was your strategy once you went into that period? So we got to uh, rifle season, and like my, my uh, strategy for rifle hunting is I always set up at the highest spot that I can, or where I have the best where I have the best vantage point. And then if I see something I want to go after, it could be 800 yards away or, or 400 yards away, whatever. Um, then I will approach it. Um, my try to get a shot. And that has always been really successful for me is to just get high, see a bunch of deer, find something I want to go after and then go after it. And so that was my strategy too, for hunting Dan on opening morning, got to a really high spot set up about 300 yards from his bedding area that i could see like the entire plum thicket if he came in there from any direction i would know and then i could get closer um, and try to get a shot at him so opening morning that's what i did and i never saw him he never came into that bedding area and at that point it was mid november uh, the exact date was like november t- november 17th i believe and so that was you know like I I'd spoke to before, the deck kind of gets reshuffled at that point because bucks lose their minds and they start, you know, changing up where they're betting and, and, you know, a deer that you followed all year can all of a sudden just disappear. And so I thought that's what happened with Dan. So opening morning, I did not see him. Opening night, I set up in a different area and about five minutes into my haunt, a doe came running by with like 140, 145 inch, uh, four by four following him following the doe and i shot that buck with my rifle and i put my rifle tag on it uh, and i was super stoked about that deer it was a deer that i had a little bit of history with um coincidentally a lot of the pictures that i had of him were when he was with dan so uh there was a, a connection there um and that was then my rifle season i tagged out opening the, the opening day of rifle season on a different buck. And so I didn't really give myself a chance to uh, target Dan more than that. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about, how, you know, I was aware of Dan and it influenced some of my hunts. But overall, my goal was never to, you know, make my season about just killing Dan. So you kill this buck, 
Now, you still have an archery tag, though, um, and you went to Kentucky. Like, what's the fat? Because you told us about the Kentucky hunt. You killed another deer somewhere. Um, can you fast forward us from that point to when you next really started thinking about Dan again? Yeah. So we would brought this up on our radio before. I had a muzzleloader tag for South Dakota that is hard to draw. Uh, it took me like nine points to draw it. And with that muzzleloader tag, it's good for the entire month of December. Uh, it's good for the entire state. And so I kind of looked at that as my next chance to kill Dan if Dan was still around. And so December 1st came. And from there up until the 21st, which is when I killed him, I had probably haunted between 20 and 25 times in the mornings and evenings. Um, and about half of those sits were specifically for Dan and the other half were just to kill any buck because this property is not big enough for me to put all my time and energy into just killing Dan. Um, I couldn't do that. Otherwise I would have haunted, you know, 25 straight times for Dan. And so during that time, I thought I laid my eyes on Dan at one point on like December 6th, but I just couldn't get close enough. Our muzzleloader season, the regulation is uh, open sights or a one power scope and so with that your effective range is like 100 yards basically um, if you've never shot open sights with a muzzle loader through a one power scope uh, it's really tough and so it had uh, it, it kind of changed my hunting style as well because like I said before when I rifle hunt I would just get to a high spot if I see something 500 yards away I can move into position and kill it but as I learned with this muzzleloader tag uh, you know all of a sudden these deer are grouped up and they're in the groups of like 20 and so there's 40 different eyeballs if you see something you want to go after that's not necessarily a done deal because you have to you know approach one buck uh, but when he is hanging out with like 19 other deer and so that makes it really tough trying to get within 100 yards to make that shot. And this is something I talked about with you, Mark, that it really yeah. uh, changed how I had to, you know, try to fill this tag. Yeah, because you were saying, like, you usually hunt one of two ways. You either hunt the way you just described, which is like your rifle hunting style, or your bow hunting, in which you're setting up for, you know, 20-yard shots or 30-yard shots or 10-yard shots, whatever it is, um, from a tree stand. So you had these, like, two different ways you typically hunt, and the muzzleloader option though was kind of this weird in between area um so you told me at first you kind of approached it as as the rifle hunt and then you very quickly realized like as you just described there are certain challenges that aren't going to make that work so right. then the next thing i heard from you you said that you were going to start approaching it a little bit more like a bow hunt again is that what you ended up doing or what did you uh so i still didn't want to limit myself to the point of being in a tree stand where i only had lanes that i could shoot to 30 yards or whatever I felt that would be too limiting for me um so what I started doing was I almost was only hunting evenings at this point and I was setting up on field edges in a ground blind um where if something came out of you know where I thought they would enter the field I would have between a you know 75 and 200 yard shot somewhere in there and so that that all changed for me about mid-december when i made the switch to, to hunting that style and what happened uh so at this point i didn't really know if dan was even around i had pulled a lot of my trailer cameras um the one sighting i had hit the one sighting i had of him was way back in early december um and then i had to take off i was gone for a week by the time i came back a lot of things had changed where uh there was no longer snow on the ground we had some like a stretch of really warm days that all of a sudden the deer were not forced to like be up in cut beans and, and cut corn anymore and so my uh goals are like i i moved the the field goal pulse again in that at this point i was willing to kill like anything over 110 inches all of a sudden because the the clock was ticking um things were not in my favor as far as me seeing many mature bucks or like having uh great late season properties to to target them on and so like going into the night that i killed that deer dan I, it was december 21st i had set up in my ground blind on a field edge of cut beans with kind of a questionable wind and i was doing that again because the, the clock was ticking um 
and, and my goals had kind of changed. I was willing to shoot a buck that maybe wasn't even a mature buck anymore. And that evening with about 30 minutes of daylight left from behind me, I see a buck come into the field and he was limping really badly. Um, and I pulled up my binos on him and I saw that it was a big five by five and immediately like I was like, I'm going to shoot this deer. I, I didn't even have time to, well, I didn't really take the time to investigate and confirm that it was Dan because I didn't care. Uh, it was a mature buck. Um, it was one of the bigger ones that I'd seen this year and it was actually looking like he would be within muzzleloader range. So it was no doubt about it. I was going to kill this deer given the chance. And, and he limped in from probably like 250 yards to 130 yards. And that was where I decided I was going to pull the trigger. I would have liked to have been a little bit closer. And I think he would have came a little bit closer, but the wind was starting to shift again that uh, pretty soon he was going to be having my scent cone right in his face. And so I shot him at 130 yards and he dropped in his tracks and I got up to him and he only had one antler on his head at that point <laughs> where the whole time that I had been watching him for like this five or 10 minutes that he was hanging out in the field, he had two antlers, but not too far away, just like three feet away was laying his other antler. Crazy. Yeah. And I, I still at that point did not even know it was Dan. I was just looking at him and like Dan's number one feature was his spread. And so when he dropped that other antler, I couldn't tell like how big he really was. Um, and, and Dan also had a split brow that at this point he had broken off. And so that was another reason that immediately I didn't think this was Dan. He was missing the split brow. I couldn't tell how wide he was. Uh, and so I just thought I killed a good mature buck until I started investigating a little bit more. So, well, uh, yeah. So you grab the other antler you stick it on his head to try to see what this deer would have looked like. <laughs> well, what did you think when you finally realized this, who this deer was? Yeah, I was like, Oh, this is a giant. I think this is Dan. And he also had, um, like these really far back set G twos that a few other bucks that I've seen this year have. And that, that's something that seems to kind of be in like our gene pool is those way set back G twos. And with that and the spread, I'm like, this, this has to be him. And so I started looking at the brows a little bit more and I could see where he broke off that split brow tie. Um, and then like that was when like the buck fever, I guess, kind of got me. I started sh shaking uh, <laughs> because that was when I realized that I had just killed Dan. Okay, before we go any further, I want to take a quick second here to thank our friends over at Whitetail Properties and to plug one of their Landbeat videos. And this one's actually from last spring, but it's becoming very relevant again because most of our hunting seasons are just about to wrap up. And what happens right after hunting season ends is that postseason scouting begins. And that's what this video is all about. So going over to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe to that. They've got lots of good videos there. But this one in particular is called Postseason Scouting. Very simple title. And my buddy Alex actually walks through some great advice when it comes to this kind of stuff. So check that one out. Highly recommend it. And um, as the new year begins, I surely will be getting out there in the woods. Hopefully it will be too because there's lots to learn at this time of year. And speaking of learning, if you do want to learn more about Whitetail Properties, you can head on over to whitetailproperties.com to see lots of interesting things there too. Now back to the show. So, I mean, does that feel, again, I go back to, I keep on trying to like understand your mindset around, you know, your, your target choices here. Did it feel any differently then having killed this deer? Like it sounds like when you realize what deer this was, your emotions change. You said buck fever hit then. So... Why did it feel different then? Was it, was it feel, was it more special in some way because of this fact that you knew the deer or something or, or no, it was just like, wow, this is a giant. Uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely more special. Um, I mean, this is like one of, you know, my favorite hunting moments I've ever had because like the story of him goes all the way back until June. And so only feel different than had this just been another deer that I hadn't ever seen before. Yeah. And so that was really exciting to me. Um, but again, because of the, the properties that I hunt and um, 
like how how some of those pieces of ground set up it's just really really hard for me to to set my sights on one buck from the summer and try to follow him all through the year um i would consider dan to be an anomaly for me and so like if you're wondering if this changes how i'm going to hunt in the future no i don't think so this this was definitely more special um and and you know i i loved every minute of the pursuit that lasted like five or six months but i don't think it's going to change like how i hunt in the future okay now outside of that outside of like the fact this is that first buck you've been able to kind of follow over a months long period of time and get a shot at um did anything else about this hunt stand out to you now afterwards as as like a a learning moment or some kind of takeaway lesson coming out of the 2018 season, whether that's in relation to the hunt for Dan or, or anything else, I guess this year. Um, what do you think that'd be? Um, man, I, I don't know. Like, like you had said with Frank, like just because that deer had huge headgear, it didn't really change like how you were hunting. It just so happened that, you know, Frank had massive antlers on his head. And so it's kind of the same case with Dan. I'm not sure that I, I come away with like any, I don't feel like I did anything different really um, to that got me to this point where I killed that deer five days ago. Um, yeah, I'm not sure there's like one really big takeaway for me. I, I think I'm largely like the same hunter that I was in 2017 as I was in 2018. Uh, I don't think there was like a, a an aha moment that got me to this point where I was able to kill that deer. Outside of that deer, looking at your entire season, is there anything that you're going to do differently next year because of something that happened this year, whether it was Dan or any of the other bucks or any of your other hunts or any of your other trips? Was there anything that happened this year that you're saying, you know, next year because of this thing that happened or because of that thing I learned or because of this aha, whatever, can you can you envision anything next year that you're gonna tweak at all? Um, I I think I need to get better with my running gun setups. That's something that I recently added to my to my arsenal. Uh, but it's something that I need to get better and, and more comfortable with. Because had I done that and I was more willing to do some of these running gun setups, I think I would have had a chance at, at killing Dan maybe in late October. Um, because I I was like sometimes getting information that was just, you know, a day old or something. If I would check a camera and see that he had been on there, um, you know, if I was more fluent with my running gun setups, I, I think I maybe would have had a better chance at killing him. Or may, maybe like when I kicked him out of the bed um, in, in, you know, early November, if I'd be more confident that I can get in there and set up like in the dark, for example, before daylight yeah. or set up and, and know that I'm going to be really quiet and not bust anything. Um, I think that would have been like a game changer for me. And so I, I guess that's something that I, I kind of realize I need to get better at is, is doing those hanging hunts. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. That definitely is a great tool to have in the chest. No doubt about that. Um, so this is, this is another interesting thing. I just kind of noticed when I was thinking about this deer and your hunt, you had this year, this year, this was a correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the, the last buck tag that you will have filled as a South Dakota resident because you are moving to Montana. I don't know if this is a public thing or not. Hopefully you don't mind me sharing this, <laughs> uh, but I think people probably have noticed, right? You're part of the meat eater team now. You're moving to Montana. Um, so this is your last resident South Dakota hunting season. How does that make you feel? Is this like a sad or bittersweet or is this like the perfect way to end the year or your, your, your period as a resident? Maybe someday it'll return, of course. But for the for the short term, where's your head and heart at? Um, well, I definitely didn't want to leave South Dakota. Um, I'm, I'm leaving South Dakota because I think – meat eater is amazing i wasn't looking to to leave this state because i know um like the opportunities that i'm blessed with to, to hunt here for whitetails like we've talked about before mark there's some years where if you uh play your cards right you can game the system and end up with like six buck tags and so uh i, I am leaving to go to montana because i think meat eater is an awesome opportunity 
So I, I was not like looking forward to losing my residency here. You know, I was really bummed about it because now all of a sudden as a non-resident, I can only get a couple buck tags. And like in, in my core area of hunting in the southeastern corner of the state, it's even harder for a non-resident to be able to hunt there outside of uh, with a bow. And so because I am like losing my residency, this is the perfect way to go out though. Um, hunting uh, here um, in, in a different way, you know, because I got to see him in June, kill him in December with a different weapon being my muzzleloader. Um, <clears throat> and then just kind of everything else that, that went into him with him shedding that antler when it happened, uh, because I, I have to go out, this is a good way for, for that to end. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't write it up much better. I don't think. And, and the good news is that while your story is ending in South Dakota, I haven't told you yet. Yeah, Spencer, but I actually have been putting feelers out in southeast South Dakota. I got permission on a property, 145-inch <laughs> buck got killed there this year, and like another like maybe high 150s or 160, like a wide 10-pointer got killed there. So uh-huh. I'm going to be hunting there next year. I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be great. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you how it goes. Yeah, yep. Uh, so I, I will be coming back here for sure to, to hunt with my bow, uh, but, you know, it, it won't be the same. So. Yeah. I will, uh, yeah, I'll be back in this area and, and some of the deer that I've seen this year in the last few years, I'll, I'll still get a chance to hunt, but rather than it being an entire season from September to December, it's probably going to just be like a, a five day stretch in early November. Yeah, that'll be different, but, uh, I'm sure you'll have all sorts of, all sorts of cool opportunities coming at you in Montana. It is a uh, hunter's paradise. So I'm sure we'll have stories from you next year about that. I guess. Yeah, uh, I hope so. Yeah, I guess I, I will just say I think I've said this already, but if not, congratulations! Like that is that's an awesome story, an awesome buck, and uh, it's been fun to get to follow along and and to see it all come together this way is, it's just like you said, it's special. Um, I'm a I'm a obviously anyone who's listening to this podcast knows that I'm a sucker about going all in or at least kind of all in on on these bucks. I really get charged about figuring out one specific deer and and getting to see you dabble in that was kind of fun from the outside so uh big congrats man and um i guess you know this just popped in my head i it's not related to you at all but speaking of these bucks that um that we follow sometimes year after year one of the bucks that i was hoping to hunt next year got killed did you see that i did see that survivor correct yeah that buck i was calling survivor he was uh he was a buck last year. I thought he was a three-year-old, um, and so I was thinking he might be a four-year-old this year, might be a deer I would hunt. Um, but once he showed up again this year and I started getting pictures and seeing him, I kind of was like, man, he just does not look like he has the body size of a four-year-old. Now, of course, estimating a deer's age is, is a it's, – it's not science. It's, it's a guesstimation as best as you possibly can on the hoof, um, taking the factors like – body size and history you can sometimes get a decent guess so i don't know for sure but my best guess was that i was wrong last year that he was probably just a good looking two-year-old last year and probably just a kind of average looking three-year-old this year so then i was passing on him this year hoping he'd make it to next year now um and he was he was like that most visible deer like frank was visible for that small period of time and then there was this buck that i that i called survivor and then this one other tall eight pointer those two were like the two three-year-olds that were pretty visible and kept seeing them kept getting pictures and got all the way through the gun season and got into the muzzleloader season i was thinking man like we're right there like they're gonna make it i'll have two deer hopefully on this little, little area i can hunt next year i was really excited about that and starting to like maybe get overconfident in my head. Like usually there's only other one, there's only ever one deer that's a, that's over four or that's four or older if ever. Uh-huh. And now I'm thinking, man, I'm gonna have two next year. This is gonna be great. And both of those deer I've seen for multiple years. And then, uh, yeah, I counted my chickens before they hatched. Cause on the last day of muzzleloader season, um, survivor got, got hit, got shot. So he's done. He got shot by a neighbor, um, who I ended up, seeing him on the property and saw he was tracking the deer tracked the deer onto the farm i can hunt um and i went out there and helped him that next morning and um actually actually was the one who found him um drove around the the guy who shot him lost blood and so i said well i know some different bedding areas that i can just go check real quickly uh and drive a four-wheeler around some of these edges and, and scope in there a little bit and uh, the first little hidey hole i went to 
there he was. So, um, yeah, it was it was nice to be able to be there to to see what happened, you know, because lots of times there's deer, these deer you see, you get pictures of, and then one year they just disappear, like Holyfield this year for me. You just don't know what happened. So in this case, it was nice to know at least, you know, how the story ended, got to, uh, got to see him up close, got to, uh, you know, be a part of someone else having a really nice day. So that's the silver lining, I guess. Right. So how do you feel then about going into 2019? How many potential mature bucks do you think that leaves you with? Well, as far as bucks that are around right now, that would leave just one. There's one three-year-old that I think is still alive. Um, and I don't even know for sure. Last time I got pictures of him was probably at least a week ago. Um, so there was still a week of muzzleloader season in between then and now that he could have got hit somewhere. Um, but hopefully that one um, made it and I'm certainly not going to shoot him the rest of the year. So hopefully he's smart and sticks around and, and makes it next year. And he'd be a cool deer. Um, I saw him quite a bit this year, passed on him the night that I shot Frank. Um, but you never know if he's out, you know, Holyfield wasn't around this year and Frank showed up. Frank's not going to be around this year. Hopefully some other mature buck, whether it's this tall eight pointer that I've been calling Tran and named him after a buddy of mine, um, or some other buck kind of rolls in. Um, and if not, I'm, I'm, I'm working on getting permission on some new spots next year and kind of diversifying where I can hunt locally. Cause, uh, you know, I hunt a bunch of different States, but here locally, I've kind of focused a lot in this one little tiny spot. And then every year kind of dabble in some other regions, but I'd, I'd like to kind of diversify closer in this area so that I can still hunt locally, but not have just this little, you know, 40 acre patch, but just have a bunch of places closer that I can, you know, stay at home, be with my family, but then still have a, a number of options so that's one of my goals going into this year this next year um because you know to what i alluded to earlier it, it becomes very much like by default the hunt for one deer because if you don't get that deer or if someone else gets that deer then there's nothing but year and a half olds and like a two-year-old usually run sure. around so we'll see um yeah, one thing one yeah. thing we didn't get to really touch on in that story was um like when dan shed that antler so one thing that determines when deer shed, uh, besides like photo period, that's the obvious one. You know, that's why most of them shed between January and March or whatever. Uh, but another factor is health. And so if yeah. a buck is really healthy and he has a great food source and it's an easy winter and there's no predators, you know, th that kind of buck can hold on his antlers until like April. I've seen it while turkey hunting, you know, deer holding antlers that late. But on the opposite end of the spectrum is if a buck is not healthy. And so, you know, Dan limping in was, you know, obvious that, that he wasn't doing very good. And that was why, you know, when I shot him, that one antler popped off from him hitting the ground. The next morning I was moving him. I accidentally popped his other antler off, even though oh, I, was like trying, I was trying to be super careful and not tug on it or, or you know, have any sudden movements with it. But I, I just couldn't prevent it the other one popped off the next day um <clears throat> and so he was he was limping visibly uh when i went to gut him in his one back ham uh he had like a, a pretty bad wound um to the point where there was like just a little bit of intestines sticking out oh, wow. um yeah he was he was blind in one eye that i i realized you know after i'd shot him uh his he hardly had any fat on him at all. Um, like you could see his backbone, uh, you know, while right after I, I killed him, like you could run your hand along his backbone and feel every vertebrae. Uh, when I skinned him, like I said, he was super, super lean when his body was hanging there and he was skinned out and caped out. Uh, you would have thought it was a doe hanging there because his neck was was so small and not what you're used to with a mature buck. No, I don't think this was like a you know some grandfather out there walking around. I think this was probably like a five and a half year old buck, but some other deer in the area like really really messed him up uh, in the rut, and that was why like, I think that was another reason that I was able to like get a chance on him into December because a lot of those deer will leave during the rut. Um, and then they just stay wherever they wound up at. But I think another buck like really messed him up and then he felt comfortable there. And that was one of the reasons that he hung around and I was able to, you know, kill him when I did. And I, I don't think 
that he would have made it through the winter either. Um, you know, whether it was infection that would have got him because that back ham was, was so, uh, you know, gored or, you know, if coyotes in the area because he was not as mobile as, as a mature buck should be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I wonder if that was also something that led to him, you know, being, killable on that food source during daylight you see a lot of times those bucks that are struggling they just become so much more dependent on being on that food all the time as they're trying to refuel um they bed really close they come out i've, I've seen there was a buck this year that same way he was injured and he was just out in the food all the time um he, he was bedding in the food source he was gimping around he would just lay right in the middle of a cut bean field and just be out there um yeah and fortunately, he he wasn't hurt so bad. I've kept kept watching him, trying to see you know what the situation was going to be. And he was getting better and better and putting on weight. And by the time we got into the late season, um, he's moving around you know just like any other deer. It looks like he's going to be fine. So that works out very well. Though sometimes when it's a buck you're after, and um, it certainly did in this case. So yeah, yeah, and like all this you know mental real estate we invest in like hunting a mature buck like that. It could just be something completely out of my control and lucky like that, that he happened to get messed up by another buck. And then he just decided to, to not leave the property. And like you said, he was, you know, more visible likely because of it that I was able to kill him. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, we say this often, but it's so cliche, but, but luck really is where preparation meets opportunity. You got to do all the right things to, to be able to take advantage of that luck and, that kind of I feel like is what happens anytime any one of us kills one. It's luck, right? Because there's so many things that could go wrong. So you have to get lucky that some of the things go right. You just need to be doing enough of the other things right that uh, the luck is the final piece of the puzzle and not just one out of ten other pieces that you didn't take care of. So uh, so you certainly did that, and that's pretty cool. Interesting of note to your point there about how your buck shed early, while I was out there helping this guy track Survivor, he stumbled upon a shed, a four-point shed um, that was real fresh, still blood in the bottom. So some deer over here just shed shed antler too. And interesting, I think I mentioned this when we did the Frank story, but it's worth noting again, Frank last year um, shed his antler in January because I saw him on a, on a neighboring field with one antler missing, I think it was like January 20th or, or late January or something like that. Um, so he interestingly you know, dropped an antler early last year. And I don't know what that was, um, what that had to do with anything or, or why that happened in his case. Um, he didn't look unhealthy when I saw him last year, um, or injured or anything. But one thing, and now I'm really going off kind of off the rails here, <laughs> but, um, you know, when you look at that deer, a lot of people noticed that his left side was much stronger than his right side. Um, like he had significantly longer tines, on, on that left side than the right. And by significant, I mean like a couple inches, inch or two maybe. Um, and someone I, I know from the Quality Deer Management Association reached out to him and said, hey, you know, it's kind of interesting how much better of a side he had this year on the left versus the right. Do you know if he got injured at all last year um, on like the opposite leg? Because lots of times you'll see things like that where an injury on sure. like a back leg might impact the other side antler. So the like a back right leg injury oftentimes will impact the the left antler, um, for whatever reason that is. And so I started thinking, well, I don't, I didn't, I hadn't seen him, you know, at all last year other than the one time while hunting in December. And that was so quick. I couldn't tell if he was injured, but to what I just told you that January sighting, he dropped early. So that might indicate, like you said, either malnutrition or an injury or something. So, so maybe that was something going on with him last year. And I don't know if that impacted things at all this year. He seemed healthy as a horse this year. Um, but, um, interesting things to take note. And I don't know. I think this is a really roundabout way of explaining why I got such a kick out of your hunt and why I got such a kick out of this hunt for Frank is I just love watching these animals. I love learning about these animals. I love like all the little things that go into it, whether it's with a whole bunch of different new places and new critters, or if it's one little property and one deer, um, just being able to be a part of all these experiences and be out there. And it's, for all like the high-minded 
intellectual words or rationale that we like to sometimes talk about or all the management objectives that we're achieving with hunting this deer or all the conservation wins we get out of it or all the you know the sustainability and the great food you get all those things are amazing they're all part of it but you know what this is just a lot of damn fun sometimes and uh <laughs> it's not a bad thing to, to to remind ourselves of occasionally yeah for sure and um Going back to an episode that you and I recorded in mid-September, I made the sports ball analogy that, like, if my season, <laughs> if my season was around a golf, that back in September I had just teed off or whatever. Uh, but now that I just killed Dan, it's at the end of December. I am back at the clubhouse at this point after 18 good holes and uh, sipping on a beer. So that's where I'm at right now. And I think that is where we should wrap up. We should all crack a cold beverage of whatever is legal uh, for you and available whether that's a coca-cola a nice glass of milk or some other frosty beverage take a sip enjoy it look back on 2018 hopefully everyone else listening uh, had as good of a year as, as me and spencer had i know it doesn't always happen that way we both were very fortunate spencer i know i'm pinching myself you probably are too and uh just a thankful a thankful group of hunters here i think that uh, that are part of wired hunt and uh, i hope everyone listening had a similar year similar exciting moments similar lessons learned and uh with that i think we should wrap it up and say cheers to everyone into 2018 so thank you everyone this is truly the last podcast of 2018 so merry christmas happy new year and stay wired to hunt I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.